I do want to uh, take the opportunity before we get into the message. You know, you, you guys hear me speak of my parents often, and uh, they're here with us today, and I'm glad they're here. And uh, Amy and I were talking yesterday about uh, just the uh, blessing of having godly parents. And, you know, uh, like me or not, I'm a lot of my mom made over. And, uh, you know, she uh, was a sacrificial person. Uh, my whole life, um, as early as I can remember, some of you have commented about how loud I sing and uh, how into singing I am in church. That comes from my mom, because whether she was in the choir or sitting by me on Sunday night, she was singing from the heart and uh, making a joyful noise. She's got a beautiful voice, but beyond that, she's always displayed a beautiful character to me, and, and I'm thankful for her. And thankful she's here with me. And uh, and so I just wanted to say that. And they're here because my brother graduated college this week, and I'm proud of him also. Um, he worked hard, and I know many have graduated, and they don't get public recognition, but he's a very quiet and private person. And most of you don't even know he's my brother, <laughs> unless I, uh, uh, for the most part. But he has, he has worked extremely hard. And achieved something very special, and I'm proud of him uh, for it. And I look forward to the years he will spend serving our community through education and children through education. And uh, so, I just want to say that that's that's my uh, benefit because I get to say that up front. I know all of you need to call your mama today after the service, and if she's living, you do. You need to call her and tell her you love her. Uh, I had a football coach teach me that uh, in college. And uh, I think it's important. And so you don't get to do it on stage, but it'll mean just as much to her if you call her and tell her that you love her. This is the time of the season of the year when families come together. And uh, we'd like to think that that's all a good thing. And, and in the most part it is, although we all have those family reunions, don't we? Where you get around people that you wouldn't get around unless you had to because they're your family. And uh, we were just being honest. And and you're around people. You There's no other connection. You have no other connection with them except that they're your family. And, uh, and, and I know that this season brings with it a lot of stress. It brings with it a lot of distraction. Uh, lots of things that turn our eyes and take our focus off of Christ. You know, there's last-minute shopping to get accomplished. As much as they try to tell us the economy's bad... I don't know if you've been out, but I've been out. People are spending money. I don't know whose money they're spending, but they're spending lots and lots and lots and lots of cash uh, around the stores. And uh, and there's that last-minute shopping that's got to take place, and food has to be cooked, and houses have to be prepared, and travel has to occur. And so all of this distraction's going on. On top of all of this having to spend time with people that we both love and hate at the same time. And there's just all of this tension underlying and distraction on the surface. And there's, on top of all of that, there's all the bad messages that come along with the Christmas season. Terrible messages. The, the self-centered focus that shoved down all of our throats, but particularly people under the age of six, under the age of 20. You know, I almost said 16, but 17, 18 year olds are pretty self-focused too. So we'll just jump. If you're, if you're below 20, I mean, the culture's trying to tell you this season's about you. 
I mean, what big purchase is that person that loves you going to make for you? And it's all about what you can get and what you can unwrap and how much it costs and what it looks like on and all of those kind of things. Uh, I mean, you know, there'll be a lot of uh, uh, a lot of things to turn our eyes, to turn our minds, to turn our hearts away from what this is really all about. And then there's the not at our church, but at churches all around the world. There are people now in church today that won't go any other time of the year. It's the it's the obligation of living in what is known as a Christian culture, whether it's Christian or not. You know, and if you're one of those people, I'm not bashing on you. I, I feel for you, really, that you have to show up to please somebody uh, and come to our, come to church. And if you're one of those people in our church, you're welcome here anytime. But I just want to uh, uh, admit to you, it's uncomfortable for you, I'm certain. And uh, it's not going to get any less uh, uncomfortable as we go through this sermon. So I'm saying up front, I'm glad you're here. And I get you once a year, so I'm going to let you have it, all right? And uh, maybe we can be friends after. But, I mean, there's all of this trapping and distraction and struggle and selfishness and all this stuff. And yet it's the most joyous time of the year, isn't it? Isn't that what it is? I mean, we're not even certain. I mean, then we got the the geeks that run around trying to dis- discuss whether this is even when Jesus was born or not. You know, I, I've, been, I've been in three of those conversations this year. You know, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. Uh, maybe look into some of that. But the bottom line is that the culture of Christianity from early on uh, didn't have a celebration. And the rest of the world, the pagans, did have a celebration. And so they, wise or unwise, adopted this as a time to celebrate the birth of Christ. I think it's a great thing that we do celebrate, set aside time to celebrate the birth of the Savior. Okay? So I'm not one of those people. You're not going to trap me in that discussion about whether it was March or December, or whether they all, would the shepherds have been out feeding flocks and these. You know, I'm not interested. Okay, I'm just not interested. It's just a distraction in my mind to an opportunity which we have to talk with friends, neighbors, and everybody about Christ. There are rank pagans among us. Heathens, however you want to call them, lost folks, atheists, agnostics, whatever you want to call them. And this time of the year, they will sit and listen to you talk about Jesus. And we want to argue about whether this is the right time or the wrong time. Forgive me if I'm a little bothered by that. We missed the point, didn't we? And mainly it's because we're distracted and our hearts are divided, not focused on what this is all supposed to be about in reality. I did a quick search. You know the passage I'm going to preach in Luke chapter 2. You can turn there. Luke 2, 1 through 20. The story of Christ being born. I was telling some of the guys in the back. It's one of the least preached on texts that I can find. Nobody preaches on these verses. I don't know why. I don't know if they're scared of them. I don't know. I, I, they are intimidating. There's a lot here. It's a narrative. It's hard to teach. There's easier Christmas passages. Philippians chapter 2. For a thinking church, a didactic church, a teaching church, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, all are easier. Even Matthew chapter 2 is easier to preach on beyond our text, Luke chapter 2. But it's one of the least talked about, I mean, preached about, passages, but it's one of the most talked about and quoted. I mean, even Charlie Brown quotes 
Luke chapter 2. Anything Charlie Brown quotes, I mean, we ought to preach about it, huh? I love Charlie Brown. And I'm thankful that, that Schultz made mention of this passage. And if you've been to a Christmas cantata, you've heard it read and quoted, sometimes butchered. But you've heard it. I mean, it's a part of our culture, little preaching on it. So I'm going to make four quick observations about this text. And obviously, it's not expositional. I'm not going to preach 20 verses in four statements, obviously. But this is kind of, uh, of a, in, hopefully, an encouragement to you during the season to focus on what matters. First thing I see in this text is that God sovereignly moved an entire empire so that the prophecy of Jesus' birth would be fulfilled. The whole empire was moved. Look at what it says in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary. While they were there, oh, excuse me, who was with child. So Caesar Augustus called for everyone in his empire, the whole world in their day, the modern world in their day, was called to rearrange itself, to go back to their hometowns. Just think about the undertaking that this is. I mean, we tend to think of a census in our terms. This is a census. The census workers come to us. They send questionnaires. The census workers collect the questionnaires through mail or by computer or however they go about it. And then they compile the data and turn it in. No. In this day, when they want to take to count noses, to take up nickels, to do their job, they had to send everybody back to their hometowns. Everybody went back. Think about that. Think about the chore it would have been having received the decree of the emperor living two or three hundred miles from where you grew up. And now this dude says, I got to walk or ride a horse two or three hundred miles to get counted. I mean, think of the inconvenience for everybody's schedule. Talk about a nightmare, a headache. Honey, get the kids. We're going on a six month journey. And can you imagine? And God did this. This entire event occurred so that His Word would stand true. His Word. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, His Word is very clear about where Christ would be born. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, the ancient of days. That sentence caused the whole world to be turned upside down. There were easier ways for this to be done, right? I mean, logically speaking, isn't it just easier that Joseph and Mary already live in Bethlehem? Why they got to live in Nazareth? So that a decree has to come. I mean, why couldn't they, beyond that, if they don't live in Bethlehem, maybe why not just move in Joseph's heart to go visit his family? that lived in Bethlehem? Why a whole empire has to be moved? Why does, why does God inconvenience hundreds of thousands of people 
so that His Word might stand. Think about it. And the answer is, is because God wants the world to know. That is no mere coincidence that He is entering the world. This is in way of announcement. So that the history books would record when the census was taken. So that the world would know that was when Jesus was born. God announcing it in a way to the whole world says, I want to inconvenience everybody. Some of you are mad at God this Christmas season because you have been inconvenienced. Life is not what you want it to be. You haven't received what you think you deserve. May I just tell you, lots of times God inconveniences us to get our attention. To refocus us on what matters. To call us to Himself. God rearranged the entire world to make His Word stand and to announce the birth of His Son. He did it through a king. He could have done it any way He chose. We've already talked about some of the other ways. But He did it through a king. Because Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The heart of the king is in the hand of God. That He directs it like a river along its course. That's what the proverb says. All these powerful people in the world that seem to think that the world revolves because they speak and because they do. I, I couldn't help but snicker at the world leaders. This year. I know I'm a simple person. Who am I to laugh at them, right? But doesn't, don't you find it quite hilarious that the most powerful men in all the world met this week to put in action some things that they have no power to make anybody do so that the world doesn't increase its, heighten its degrees by two degrees Celsius in 50 years. But by the way, we have no authority to tell you to do this. We're just telling you to do it. Please do it. I, my heart just kind of laughs. When God wants His Word to stand, He can rearrange the whole world by moving one man's heart. We sit and tremble in fear of worldly leaders and we serve a God who holds their heart in His hand and does whatever He pleases. The first thing I see in the passage is God is willing to inconvenience and rearrange the whole world to make His Word stand and to announce that His Son is coming. And those leaders, Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at his time, is nothing more than a cog in the wheel of God's sovereign plan. He's just one cog. He's just one part. One step further, he's no more important a part than the shepherds that we're going to hear from later, the magi who came from afar. He's no more important than Mary and Joseph. He's no more important than the innkeeper. He's just one cog in a sovereign plan which God would bring about in the birth of his son. What a beautiful intro to a story. God is sovereign. Isn't that the message, really, of the entire Bible? God is king. Not for the day, not for the year, not for an elected term, not as long as he lives and then he dies, but God is king for eternity. He does whatever he pleases. 
That's the first thing I see from this Christmas passage. The second thing that I see here is that Jesus was made poor for us, that we might be rich through Him. I mean, if we're talking about the idea of insignificance, if we're talking about the idea of not feeling important, there's no passage greater than this one to show us the truth that though we may look insignificant to the world, God still has a plan. I mean, look at the passage. Verse 6 says, And while they were there, they were there for a long time, I think. We tend to think they hung out in a stable for just a little while. I mean, they were there for a long time, I think. Months, maybe. While they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And so she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in strips of cloth. Swaddling clothes. Leftover linen. Useless towels. That's what the Son of God was wrapped in. Insignificant. There was no, there was no high-priced silk. There was no down comforter. There was no pomp and circumstance. During that time, it was time for him to be born. And she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she laid him in a manger, Luke says, by the way, because there was no room for them in the end. Jesus was made poor for us that we might be rich through him. That's what the verse says to me. As I read it, as I think about it, as I contemplate it, the message that comes from it. If God can arrange a census whereby He moves the whole known world of their day, don't you think He could have planned for an open room in an inn? Think about that. If God wanted Jesus to be born in an inn, in a warm, comfortable place, if He can move an entire empire of millions of people so that He would be born in Bethlehem, certainly He could have had one vacancy available in town if He so wanted it. But He didn't want His son born in a house. He didn't want His son born in an inn. He didn't want His son born in a king's palace. He wanted His son born in a stable, in a manger, Wrapped in leftover, worn out cloth instead of silk and high priced trappings. Why? Because he was made poor so that we might be rich. Think of it. The throne room of God Almighty is where he resided for all of eternity past. In the very glory of God, the light of God shone. From Him and to Him face to face. And the next time we see Him, He's in a manger, in a cave, cold, dark, and all alone with His, with his mom and His earthly dad. Talk about from the penthouse to the outhouse. 
We can't understand the transaction that occurred. We can't figure it out. It's not humanly reasonable that God... When lost people say, and if you're lost here today, you say, this is quite a remarkable story, but it cannot be true. I want to just ask this. Could a human make up a story like this? I mean, think about it. Humans made up stories about God, God from time immemorial. But never would they have created a story like this. Think of how, how impractical, how illogical, how crazy it is that the Creator of all things was born in a cave at night in secret, wrapped in leftover cloth, laid in a stall where animals ate. It doesn't make sense unless by the eyes of faith you understand that the Bible clearly teaches us He gave up everything, all of His rights as God, though He didn't give up any of His being God to become our Savior, to dwell among us, to live with us. I think it says not only did He become poor so that we might be rich, but I think a sub-point to that is He didn't move in the high-priced, affluent neighborhood. He moved in with the base of society. When John chapter 1 says he pitched his tent among us, it wasn't among kings and wise men that he lived. It was among poor, below middle class shepherds. So if you're here today and you live on the wrong side of the track, Jesus would have been more likely to be born in your neck of the woods than in the high rent district. Why? Because he wanted to identify with our misery. He didn't come just as any human. He came to identify with the lowest denominator among us. Poor. Born in a cave. No room in the inn. I mean, if God desired for His Son to be born in an inn, if He can rearrange a whole empire, surely He can make one room available. But He didn't want that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Philippians chapter 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. So the first steps he made were from majesty and height to death. The lowest of depths. Not just that he became a human, but he became the least among his men. Uh, least among the men of the earth. Least among the tribes of Israel. Least among his own family. His brothers born after him weren't born in stables. They were born in a house. Probably with a midwife at service. And their birth was probably jubilantly announced. Jesus got none of that. 
any of us who think of this story think, surely a human couldn't make a story like this. Only God could write this script. To rearrange an entire empire and yet let his son be born in a stable. This is the act of a sovereign God. Third, I see in this text, as we move through it, that the angels announced the birth of Jesus. The angels announced the birth of Jesus, and the announcement is packed with theology. I mean, look what they say. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Nobody else saw it. Bethlehem estimated at this time, because of the census, to be quadrupled its normal size. And nobody else saw this except the shepherds. God opened only their eyes so they could see the heavenly host. They were announcing the birth of Christ. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. There are only two emotions in the human brain. We know this now as we study. Love and fear. That's it. Everything else is a mask for one of those two. Every thought you have originates from one of those two emotions. Love or fear. They were afraid. They were scared to death. And the angel says to them, Fear not. He said to Zechariah when he appeared in the temple, Gabriel said, Fear not, Zechariah. When he came to Mary, he said, Mary, fear not. When he came to Joseph, he said, Fear not. When he came to the shepherds, and I do believe it was Gabriel once again, he said, fear not. Do not be afraid. When you come face to face with the holiness of who God is, the only emotion it evokes is fear. The only right emotion it evokes is fear. Anything else is insanity. Pride. I mean, it can't, there's no way you can be shown a piece of the glory of God and you think anything except I'm in deep trouble. And yet the message from God immediately is don't be afraid. Because what's occurring here is not your normal baby announcement. What's occurring here is the host, the armies of heaven are saying, our king is coming. We're coming before him to tell you that he's here. Don't be afraid. But our king is here. When conquering armies in this day came, they sent heralds before them to say, submit or be conquered. God did the same. He's telling the shepherds, submit now. The king is here. That fear you feel in your heart right now, it's just, it's right, but don't fear. Why? Look at the theology behind it. 
They don't just say, don't fear. I bring you good news of great joy. And that shall be to all the people. Now, we had to unpack this a little bit. You see, the fear which they had is natural. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, though, tells us, what is the good news? This is the good news. Since, therefore, the children of man share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Why were they afraid? Because they deserved to die. And when God's presence was made known to them, that reality is what rose to the top. Not how good they were, not how much they had served Him, not what good Jews they had been, but we're in deep trouble. If God's come in now, we're not ready. And immediately the angel says, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you good news. What good news? Of great joy. What great joy. God's coming not to judge you, but to defeat your greatest enemy. That's the theology behind don't be afraid. When our lives are dominated by fear, it only says one thing. Our hearts are not yet fully under control of the one who casts out fear. And the reality is that's all of us, isn't it? I mean, we live in that now, not yet tension all the time. And when fear starts to creep up, it's a real thing. It's one of two real emotions you can actually have as a human. And the beauty of the good news is there will be a day when there will only be one emotion that comes from the human heart. Love. Why? Because the king came. And he conquered who you fear the most. God rearranged sovereignly an entire empire. Made his son be born in a manger to cast out the greatest fear that you know. So that one day, in his reality, the eternal kingdom, there will only be one thing you feel. And that's love. I told you, their announcement is filled with theology. This is just a little tip of the iceberg. They don't stop there. It's good news of great joy. Philippians tells us that the good news produces great joy. Philippians 1.25, Paul says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I insert this here because I have a concern for Christians gathered at Grace Fellowship. And if you're a Christian and you are visiting with us, I'm concerned for you too, I guess. Because we of all the people of the earth should be filled and characterized with joy. You should be filled with joy. Your children should rise up and say, one thing my mom and dad were was joyful. Not hurried, not stressed, not sad, not angry, not selfish. 
joyful. Your neighbor should say, our neighborhood's a better place because Carlton and Amy live here and they are filled with joy. If your heart is not filled with joy, it's a good indication you have not understood rightly the good news. You cannot be a Christian and be unjoyful. I can't say it any blunter than that. I mean it with all my heart. Oh, you can be a Christian and be sad. You can be a Christian and be stressed. You can be a Christian and have sin. But you cannot be a Christian and not be joyful. No joy means no Christ. No Christ means you don't know the good news. No good news means you still fear God rightly. You should. Because He will judge you as His enemy. Not as His son. Not as His friend. There is, it is an absolute contradiction of the Bible to say, I'm a Christian, but I don't know what joy is. Behold, I bring you good news. And it's great joy. I mean, this, this, this text, this announcement is filled with theology. The final point of theology I'll make out of their announcement is that the, those who have faith are at peace with God. Those who have faith are at peace with God. Now, you may say, now where do you get that from? I know that you you have a good translation, and being a Grace Fellowship is, is surely the ESV after all these months of me saying that you need an ESV. I'm sure you have one now. But if you don't and you still have a King James Bible or a New King James, it's not that's not the Word of God. It's just that it's not as good as an ESV. If you're looking to buy a Bible for Christmas, I'd buy an ESV. Because they get verses like this right. Because for years you heard... That the angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill among men. That's not at all what they said. That's not what they said. That's what Michael Jackson sang about. And the Jackson 5 on their Christmas album was that there was going to be harmony and peace among all men. But that's not what God said. God said, glory to God in the highest. If you have NASB, it's right too, by the way. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. There's no peace for you if God's not pleased with you. There's only a sword. There's only judgment. There's no peace. Don't get in this warm and fuzzy feeling, drinking your eggnog, sitting around the fire and roasting chestnuts, that God is at peace with everybody. He is not. He is at war with those who hate Him and who are not His children. He is at war. The only people He's pleased with are those whom He is well pleased with. And how is He pleased with you? Through faith. Paul said it is impossible to please God without faith. So what it leads me to say, to believe about this announcement is that what he's saying is God is bringing peace to the earth through Jesus Christ for those who believe in Him as their Savior. 
It's not peace with everybody at all cost. It's peace on God's terms. And his terms are believe in his son and be saved. That's his terms. One of the indications that you do not believe in his son is your heart is not filled with joy. Because you do not know the good news. Therefore, you are a bitter, angry, self-focused individual. And you are at war with God. And what he would say through his announcement is, have peace through my son. This announcement is filled with theology. We're just going to stop there because that's enough for one day. But it's filled. There's more. But we'll move to the end. When you, the last thing I see in this passage is when you are given the ability to see the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus, then you will spend your days treasuring him in your heart and telling others about him with your lips. Even the birth announcement and the story of Jesus in Bethlehem is filled with evangelism. Look at the text. 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And the shepherds were Christians, by the way. The good news was made known to them. They took it literally. And so they move out and go to Bethlehem. And look what it says. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the shepherds, at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying God and praising God for all that, that, that all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Mary treasured Jesus in her heart. And she treasured the events around his birth. Verse 19 says that Mary treasured Jesus. It's the definition of salvation. Treasuring Christ in your heart. Unless you treasure him in your heart. Unless you... And what do we mean by treasure? The definition is that thing which you would give everything else up for having that one thing. That's what Mary said about her baby. Her son. The son of God. Jesus Christ. Everything else I give up. Just let me have Jesus. She treasured him in her heart. That's the definition in my mind of a Christian. To treasure Christ in the heart. Which will fill you with great joy because of the good news. Which makes Christmas a celebration. Without that, Christmas is a commercial-driven racket that's going to cost you a lot of money. Make you hang around people you don't really like, but you're kin to them, so you've got to hang around them. Give you indigestion, you'll gain five pounds at least. All these bad things are what you know Christmas as unless you treasure Christ in your heart. If you treasure Him, then you know what this season really is. It's a celebration of the king that brings great joy because of his good news. 
And you won't just know it in your heart, but as verse 17 says, you will tell others about it. And you will sing His praise and you will glorify His name. As we close, as we leave, as we prepare our hearts, our minds, our families for this season, I make one, just one quick application for lost men and women and one quick application for those of us who are, by the grace of God, saved today. The application for the lost is this. Whatever you've been told, whatever you walked in this room believing, know this. God hates sin and He will punish sinners. You may at this moment live in the relaxation and the thought of, I have not been paid for my sin yet. But have no doubt, payday's coming. Do not delude yourself with thoughts of peace if you don't know Him. To you, He is at war, not at peace. And so I say, believe in Jesus Christ, His Son. Today, believe. What do I mean when I say believe? Exactly what I meant when I said treasure Him in your heart. It means that everything else is counted as nothing. And He is held as the one possession you will not sacrifice or give away. Not your family. Not your friends. Not your popularity. Not your name. Not your wealth. Not your citizenship in the United States. Everything else. All your possessions. All your friends. All your family. Your citizenship in this nation. Everything else is held with an open hand. It can come or go. But Christ I will hold on to as my one treasure. Above everything else. If that's not what you're saying today. If you're saying, well, I want to hold on to Jesus and everything else too. If you're saying, well, I'm not too sure about this Jesus character. But I got all these good things. He must be at peace with me. Don't fool yourself. You don't know what Christmas is. Because you don't know the joy of the good news. And I want you to know it. I don't want you to just hear it. I want you to know it. I want you to have it in your heart. That He is the one treasure. We often will say, I don't know if I would stand in front of a firing squad and die for Christ. Well, I will tell you this, if you don't treasure Him right now, you will never die if that time comes. I do know that. And more importantly, I know if you don't know Him now and you die, you will surely die for eternity. Know Him. Application for saved people. Do not be distracted. We have an opportunity with our children, with our families, with our friends, with our work associates, with our neighbors to preach the good news and by God's grace bring joy, great joy to their life. Don't waste this 
opportunity. Don't waste it. Be busy about it. Treasuring in your heart means He, the praise for Him, will come from the lip. Don't rubber stamp your life and say, I'm a believer. Examine your life and know if you are really in the faith. Because if He is not coming from your lips, you must examine the heart to know if that's what you treasure. So the application for saved folks is, don't be distracted. Preach the good news this Christmas. And bring great joy to your life and those around you. And self-examine and know whether you really know the good news. Don't assume. Do not assume. Know Him. That's what Christmas is. Let's pray. Father, in heaven, you know our hearts.